Welcome to the JHI Podcast. This is the first in a series of occasional podcasts meant to explore new and important work in intellectual history. We are delighted to welcome Sureka Davis to our inaugural episode. Sureka's book, Renaissance Ethnography and the Invention of the Human, was awarded the 2016 Morris D. Forkosh Prize for the best first book in intellectual history by our parent organization, the Journal of the History of Ideas. But the prizes don't stop there. Sureka just received the 2017 Roland H. Bainton Prize in History and Theology from the 16th Century Society. So Sureka, congratulations from all of us at the JHI blog. Thank you very much, and uh, thank, thank you for the invitation. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. I'm a cultural historian, also an art historian and historian of science. I specialize in the intersection between art, science, and anthropology. I'm an assistant professor at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut, and I'm now working on my second book project on uh, encounters with objects, having spent my first book project looking at encounters through maps. Ooh, you'll have to tell us more about this upcoming project. Sure. All right, so Sirika is here today to discuss her book, Renaissance Ethnography and the Invention of the Human, which I gather is out now in paperback from Cambridge. That's true, yes. All right. So guys, if you haven't bought a copy of this book yet, go out there and get a copy of it. If it's okay with you, Sirika, this is how I see our conversation going today. We'll start with a little bit about you, just to kind of set the stage for the audience, you and your background, how you came to this topic and the material, and then we'll spend some time talking about the illustrated maps that you discuss in your book. And after that, we'll move away from maps and into a more meta discussion. So for those of you who are interested in thinking about maps more in the context of current conversations in history of science or history of art, stick around and we'll get there. Uh, is there anything you want to say about the book for our listeners before we get into more detailed conversation? Um, well, let's see. Can I can I uh, sum it up in a in a sentence or two? <laughs> um, it's it's about the ways in which the concept of the human changed in the long 16th century and the crucial part that maps played in helping readers, travelers, scholars to visualize you know what the consequences might be of different climates for uh the, the kind of human and and think about the ways in which you might potentially stop being human and become something else and you know, become monstrous in harsh climates so it's at the intersection of kind of environmental thinking and art and science so how did you come to this project? Let's begin with a little mm -hmm. bit about your intellectual background and, and what brought you to this. Sure. Um, I started off as a historian of science. I uh, did my BA and my MPhil at the University of Cambridge in the history and philosophy of science. And uh, while I was there as an undergraduate, you know, we had a couple of sessions wandering around the Whipple Hu Museum of History of Science, and I got talking to the curator there, Professor Liebertaub. We kind of ended up working uh, together on a, an early 16th century map for one of my MPhil uh, topics. And what I had really been interested in right from the beginning was encounters. I'd watched far too much Star Trek, watched <laughs> Far too many astronomy documentaries, uh, but of course, like half of my physics cohort at Cambridge, we realized we couldn't exactly invent warp drive and live, live, live the dream, and we decamped to more exciting subjects like history of science. So my, my projects um, in you know, the kind of cultural encounters uh, in representation have really been about trying to kind of find that, that philosophical space. Um, and uh, I became a, a curator at the British Library in the Map Library fairly kind of early on. Um, so after my MPhil, before I started my PhD, and on my second day as a curator at the uh, Deputy Map Library, and said, 
weird new exhibit in the lobby that it really needs to be changed. Can you tell me tomorrow what you want to do a new 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 exhibition on? And I had a day to kind of run around um, the kind of reference books and given my interest in um, the age of exploration in, in iconography, in, in, in cultural encounters, the images of, of of cannibals and, and, and giants on maps leaped out at me. And um, I approached them as a historical anthropologist rather than looking at images of headless men and cannibals and thinking, oh, look at all of this fanciful, mythological, invented stuff from back when people had no science. That's not what I thought at all, although that's the implicit narrative in, in earlier work. I thought, well, what cultural work are these images doing? What were these map makers reading? What were they um, trying to do with these images on maps? And once I designed the exhibition and then started thinking about a dissertation topic, it was clear that you know, my, my work on representation of encounters was going to uh, include a significant component on the work done by this, this quite unusual artifact. So how did you choose the sort of overall arc of your book and which cases wound up in the book versus which ones kind of got left on the cutting room floor? Um, that's an interesting question. I started by deciding I had to get a sense of what the range of representations might be. Uh, and I started decided to start from the beginning, uh, which uh, for Worlds Found by Sailing West um, was going to be 1492. I was particularly interested in, in the invention of uh, Native peoples of the Americas. So I lobbied to let myself get sent down to the British Library basements, um, the kind of eight, eight stories underground, uh, and to kind of open all the trays to look at all of the maps and atlases from the late 15th century onwards, until I felt as if I'd found enough material to stop. And I recorded those maps that had images that were more interesting than generic stick figures in a FileMaker database that I devised. And as I did that, I would add, add, add you know, keywords and, and fields for the different sorts of, of motifs that emerged. And I couldn't know what they were going to be until I actually looked. And as I looked, I found uh, Brazilian cannibals, you know, Amazons in Guiana, so on and so forth. And what I didn't find, and which I one might have assumed I might find, would be, for example, cannibals everywhere, Amazons everywhere. Mm -hmm. What became very apparent was that different regions had different uh, motifs. And so as I drafted my kind of early dissertation chapters, I focused on the motifs that appeared most frequently. So, you know, cannibals were on about 40% of the illustrated maps. Uh, giants were the next most frequent. Um, then there were some motifs that were kind of unusual, very distinctive and fleeting. The Amazons and, and the um, headless men of Guiana were that way. But my overarching question was, these images for the Americas are geographically very specific. In a way, they aren't for Asia and, and Africa. So my, my stories were going to be about the emergence of distinctive iconographies for different places. Uh, what, what was the epistemological work that was done when these map makers who never traveled anywhere devised by reading you know, a lot of texts devise very distinctive motifs. So what's the difference between what they're reading and the things they choose? And it's easy to look at cannibal images and say, well, the map makers were trying to sensationalize and demonize the people. If that were the case, then why didn't they choose human sacrifice for Mexico, for example, or idolatry for uh, the Inca Empire? It's only when you, you, you look at the kind of whole uh, range of, of decisions map makers made that you see that you know with each successive motif that gets added to a new region, what map makers are able to show is that they read something new about a different place. They're trying to harness the the um, authority of the eyewitness, and the best way to do that is to pick something from one of the new texts about a new region that hasn't already been used to emblematize the old. So what they're offering to the viewer is these, these artifacts that help you to 
organize all of this confusing information that's flowing in uh, from distant worlds. You gave that a name in your book. You called it the artifactual epistemology. Yes, indeed. Um, it's, you know, this is not the, uh, the, the uh, an eyewitnessing uh, authority, um, it, but it's, it's an epistemology of, of, of this artifact being able to do work that others cannot. And partly that's because there's a grid. You have the, the rediscovery of Ptolemy's Geographia in the 15th century in Western Europe. And once you're putting the world on a grid where you can tell what latitude and longitude different people live in, or particularly latitude, then the fact that bodies and minds are supposed to change with harsher or more temperate climates is something you can suddenly see. So the connection between geography Climate and human variety become explicit and visual on maps in a way that they don't on any other kind of text or image. So this might be a fun time to digress and ask, what, who were these map makers? Why did their contemporaries trust them? Uh, those are great questions. The map makers who made maps with these these detailed images of peoples. They worked in centers of production around Europe. Um, there you see a kind of lot of mapping in the Low Countries, the German lands, um, Iberia and Portugal as well, although what survived from there is in much smaller proportion. I pretty much talk about all of the world maps and maps of the continent from Iberia that, that have this, this relevant imagery. And then uh, you have an, a pocket in Normandy in France. So these map makers divide up into people who are producing manuscript maps and printed maps. Although people were borrowing information across that divide. Um, so some of these map makers would have been what you know we might call, call artisans. So they had you know they had you know, practical skills. They were they were people who drew. They were people who engraved plates, uh, for example. Uh, but you would also have people with more theoretical training. You know, geographers who went to university. Uh, so uh, map makers whose names um, people will have heard of include. Uh, Abraham Altilius and Sebastian Münster are on the side of um, people who are kind of humanistically trained, who are reading a lot of ancient texts as well as modern texts. And um, on on the other side, you have you have uh, map makers associated with with manuscript cartography and with you know encounters with travelers in places like Seville in Spain at the Casa de la Constitución, this house of trade. Uh, to which all Spanish voyagers sent out from the crown needed to return and then report. And a mapmaker like Diego Ribeiro, uh, a Portuguese mapmaker who, who ended up working in, in, in Seville, is you know uh, someone working right there in, the, in the, this nexus of information coming in and out of Europe uh, about the Americas. This is really a very interesting position to occupy as the map maker you have to it seems like you have to have some kind of knowledge in order to adjudicate between competing accounts and you mm -hmm. also have to be able to pick out you know like you said what's a relevant thing that would both say something about a new place and also signal something about the maker himself it's mm -hmm. usually a, a him right I'm assuming that uh, yes, usually a him. Sometimes uh, when uh, map publishers died there, uh, and it's like, you know, just in book and print publishers there, companies might end up passing to their wines. Um, we don't have names for all of the people who worked on maps, so it's, you know, it's not impossible that there were there were women kind of working in some of these workshops about whom we we know we, we just don't have information. Um, you know, rather like with painting workshops, there might be one name on the canvas, but there were people you know, grinding paint, there were people preparing the canvases, and so on. And just to go back to the the, the other kind of question you asked, you know, why did anybody? want to listen to someone sitting perhaps in Central Europe and making maps. Um, the writing on a lot of these maps gives us clues as to how the map makers were 
looking rhetorically to construct their authority. They talk about producing the best, newest, most accurate map using the latest sources. So their rhetoric was that of, there are a lot of people traveling and doing stuff. It's really confusing to follow what's going on. So come to us. Uh, we have read all of these new things alongside the old ones, and you see that language, your maps compiled from ancient and, and recent sources. And um, our grid allows you to be almost a, a philosophical a philosophical traveler through space, you can sit here and look at the same time at information from Africa and information from, uh, say, Patagonia. That's not something any individual traveler is likely to have done. So you get to run these thought experiments. Um, almost the, the, the explorers are the prosthetics of the map maker and the map maker's maps are the prosthetics of the viewer through which you almost now I'm going to go very Star Trek. It's it's almost like this is this is your 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 trans warp hub that takes you to other places very quickly. And that is the map. Oh, I love it. So in your book you talk about a group of maps, a very, group of very interesting manuscript maps that were made by Ooh. Mormon map makers. So maybe this is a good time to transition into talking about these very special objects. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, so, sorry, was that the Norman maps you were talking yes. about? Yes, sorry. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I, I love those. They are they are so extraordinary as, as kind of artistic uh, works, very, very rich uh, manuscript world maps, uh, manuscript maps and atlases, mostly produced in the you know, 1540s, 1550s, uh, out of cities like uh, Dieppe in, in, in Normandy. Um, what's unusual about these maps is um, that the way in which they represent the peoples of Brazil is different from the ways in which these peoples are represented on maps across the other traditions, across uh, German, Dutch, and Iberian traditions. Uh, so while most traditions show cannibals in Brazil, the Norman maps show people going about their, their, their daily uh, lives in ways that involve, include trading very peacefully with um, with Europeans. For example, the Valard Atlas, uh, which you can consult on the Huntington Library website in, in great detail. They have fabulous digital images. The Valard Atlas uh, shows in South America a trading encounter between uh, French sailors and uh, kind of peoples of Brazil who, who provide, for example, uh, parrots in exchange for ironwork, in exchange for a basket of hatchets. And that's uh, one of my kind of favorite images and indeed kind of ends up on the um, cover of my book. What's, one thing that's different about these maps from uh, many that have images is, of course, that, that they, are, they are manuscripts, so each one is unique. Um, a number of these opulent French manuscript maps and atlases have coats of arms on them that show that uh, they were most probably given as gifts to Henry II of France. And this big flurry of, of, of extraordinary maps with his various coats of arms on uh, appear and, and, and were, were, were given to him around the time when he exceeded the throne. And um, this kind of context, this, this Norman context was one in which Brazil was really, really important to this region, to Normandy in the 16th century, because Norman entrepreneurs were sailing to Brazil in order to acquire uh, this Brazil wood, this dye wood that made a really good red dye for the textile trade. But of course, Portugal considered Brazil to be its own space. And so these Norman entrepreneurs will be sneaking over, and this is where the, what the kind of word pirate is for, people who are just kind of trading and raiding in places where somebody else thinks they, they shouldn't be. Um, and you know, Norman, Norman traders uh, built these, these, these good relationships with the native Tupinamba people who would apparently cut these you know, logs 
and transport them to the coast where the Normans could load them into their boats. And this meant the Normans had, were, in, were less likely to end up uh, being, being attacked by the Portuguese. And the Portuguese, being annoyed about this, would make uh, uh, complaints to the French king and say, why are you allowing you know, your, your country folk to interfere in, in our sphere? So what you have is the entrepreneurs um, trying to kind of bribe the French king to give them permission, to give them letters of mark to go to Portugal and also to even raid Portuguese ships. And the Portuguese trying to lobby the, the, the French king to outlaw uh, French travels to um, Brazil. So what these maps did, when they, as they kind of, the way they kind of functioned as, as, as gifts from Norman entrepreneurs, from, from, from some of the, the officials in, in, in the um, in a kind of French uh, kind of marine arm, was they reminded the king um, of all of the wealth that was coming into France uh, when you know, Norman entrepreneurs sailed to Brazil and pointing out that this money was available for him to uh, draw on uh, in his own wars with, for example, Charles, Charles V of Spain. So this iconography, you can, you can see where the Normans have sometimes, say, uh, borrowed from a German map full of cannibal imagery and cannibal texts and then jumped over the bit that's about cannibalism and moved on to talk about something more peaceful. So even where you see cannibalism on Norman maps, it's presented as a small localized thing that doesn't bother the actual trading activities or the, the French relationship. I feel like this set of maps opens up such an interesting set of points uh, related to what you said about map making being a kind of prosthetic. Mm. Because how would the king know what's in Brazil? Mm. Mm. And it seems like it's a highly specific kind of prosthetic. It will just to follow your metaphor of the warp drive, mm -hmm. it will drop you either into a peaceful trading world or mm -hmm. one. I was thinking of the imagery on another famous map, the uh, 1516 Carta Marna, mm -hmm. where you would be dropped into a world where the Native Americans are spit roasting, I believe. And yes. Fellow. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how iconographies of the New World, of New World peoples kind of developed and specialized over the long 16th century. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Um, the um, places where the story begin, they kind of begin in, in, in two places. Uh, one is with, with the travel writing, so you know, what is the information that is available in Europe about the Caribbean or, or Brazil or, or Virginia or wherever it may be. And so when you compare the, you know, travel accounts and the descriptions of peoples to the descriptions and illustrations on maps, you can see that map makers didn't sit and make things up out of their own little minds. Um, what they, they put on maps is things that they saw written on the text. So, uh, for example, with the Valtemula map, with the... Um, um, with the images um, of cannibals across the uh, German maps, we see um, all kinds of different details about uh, cannibalism. You see, uh, for example, limbs hanging from trees. You see um, limbs, uh, whole bodies and spits. Uh, you see individual limbs on spits. You might see dismembered hands protruding from cooking pots in an in in, in ultimately kind of futile fashion. Um, and all of these details, if you, if you take the time to kind of look in the travel writing, you can see, oh, these are from here and these other ones are from there and, and get a sense of how widely people are reading. The challenge is if you are reading uh, a text by, uh, you know, attributed to Amerigo Vespucci, who kind of went to the Caribbean or, or, or Columbus, it's not clear from the text you are reading 
what the shape of geography might be, exactly where they sailed to, exactly where they landed. They didn't know themselves because uh, longitude couldn't be measured uh, terribly accurately until centuries later. So as a map maker, you have to make decisions about um, how, where you're going to put the images that you actually devise. And this is where you might draw on a second body of information, which is what you know from the texts of classical antiquity. Um, so um, kind of you know that you know, certain climates are kind of want to create uh, bodies that are kind of deformed um, you know, minds that are that are deformed, and so the idea that there were kind of savage you know, cannibals at you know in, in southern latitudes was kind of intrinsically plausible to the map makers. So within their own notions of reason, it was perfectly um, plausible that there would be um, people who can behave or look differently um, at you know at their in different parts. Of the world, as we get through the 16th century, there are of course more sources that that are available: visual sources, textual sources. Not only can map makers look at each other's maps and printed maps circulated across um, different centres, but uh, maps made maps coming out of centres that were travel centers like, like Spain and Portugal were highly desired by other people. So people would try to uh, bribe people who had manuscript maps to sell them. They would capture them from ships. We also start to see geographies, uh, kind of textual works that describe different regions of the world. From the mid 16th century, we see costume books of the world that show you the kind of peoples. But there, there comes a point where, you know, all, you know, Artists for all of these genres had to sit and devise an image from a text for something they themselves have not seen. And sometimes the earliest images we have by some decades are actually on maps. So the earliest images of giants in Patagonia are, are on maps. And then uh, much later, you see them appearing on texts that sometimes even cite those maps. So the Barnier's physician and, and collector, Lisa Aldervandi, uh, cites a map by Cornelius uh, de Jode, uh, a, a low countries mapper, uh, when he talks about uh, giants in Patagonia. So there's a lot of movement in and out of maps within a broader context of print technologies um, and also the manuscript sources that are, that are circulating. This kind of brings us back around to your earlier point about artifactual epistemologies and how they were seen as themselves vehicles of knowledge. You know, we are mm -hmm. probably more accustomed to looking at these maps and thinking, oh, how beautiful, you know, lovely things that hang on a wall. But for audiences of their time, they were actually used much the way that one might use, I don't know, maybe, I don't want to say Google Maps, it doesn't seem mm -hmm. like the right analogy, but... Well, there are some visual encyclopedias, perhaps. Yes, yes, exactly, that they were used in a way that probably modern viewers wouldn't have, wouldn't anticipate. Yes, uh, that's, that's, that's a really important point. Uh, it's something that you know we need to kind of look to find, which is uh, evidence for exactly how uh, people used maps in the Renaissance. Because you know, if, even if you take one of the largest maps, you know, Valtimolis fifteen sixteen world map, something like you know, twelve foot across, eight foot deep. If that's covering the whole world, you're not really going to be able to use it like the map on your phone. So they're clearly about things other than other than wayfinding. And you know, in the sources, you, you find the clues for, for how people were using maps. Um, the uh, Elizabethan polymath, John Dee, uh, writes about how maps were used, and I'm going to quote him. He says, you know, some people use them to beautify their halls, parlors, chambers, uh, for others, 
uh, for things past as battles fought for others, and this is the interesting bit, to view the large dominion of the Turk, the wide empire of the Muscovite, and the little morsel of ground where Christendom by profession is certainly known. So you see what you see there is Dee saying people use maps to compare different regions and see that the Turk has a very large dominion and Christendom has a rather smaller one. In in uh, in comparison, um, so and and because a lot of texts about New World were were texts uh, covering you know quite a range of, of different places, what you could do with a map is kind of uh, conceptualize where these regions are. So they were they were mnemonic devices that also served uh, kind of a broader um, uh, kind of rhetorical purposes you were able to see for example if you were a, a Dutch trader you might have you know maps up to show where some of your, your interests were. I want to go back to the point that you made using the John D quote which is that users in this period were using the maps to compare various ethnographies different ways of being human and to mm-hmm. think about the range of what it meant to be human in this period, because I think that was a very important part of the argument in your book. Yes, yes, it did, Uh, and it was. Um, We might, uh, where where is a good place to uh, begin? Well, perhaps we might begin uh, in classical antiquity and with the, you know, the the, the kind of human human body, which... uh, was not seen to be this 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 fixed entity, but rather something that changed with climate, with food, with the um, location in which you lived, and and in a way, I mean that was the, the classical version of you are what you eat. Um, what this meant was if you moved people to different uh, zones, you might expect that their bodies and temperaments to change. So what you have already in, in classical antiquity is this sense of the human body as something that's mutable, and we, we might even say vulnerable. So if that's a human body with its blurry edges, then what else is out there? Well, of course, we have, we have kind of... Um, um, animals, but there are also in this this chain of being there are there are a whole range of, of, of beings that, that fill in the the gap in between. And there is this concept of the monster, which uh, is very important for the concept of, of the human up until at least the eighteenth century. So while the word monster for us conjures up this sense of things that are by definition imaginary. Um, what the word monster really means, a more capacious definition, is monsters are category breakers. They are things that uh, do not fit our categories of the things that exist on this world, in this world. So, you know, uh, why, uh, a monster truck rally is not a truck rally of uh, imaginary trucks, but rather of trucks that don't fit our normal conventions of what a truck is. They might be vastly large or have all kinds of prosthetics, for example. So um, if you have a sense of, of, of the, the life forms in nature being you know, a, a certain set, uh, like, for example, it might include cats and dogs, you know, a monstrous being would be something that was seen to be half cat and half dog, and it would be breaking the category of, of cat and dog. In classical antiquity, we see three traditions for thinking about monsters, i.e. three traditions for talking about things that break categories. And one was the, that these were omens, they were portents, they were signs from the gods, uh, warning that something terrible was going to happen, or a sign that somebody had had, had sinned. Another tradition was of uh, monsters as simply being accidental errors, as nature worked on the brute, resisting uh, form of, of, of matter, sometimes there would be mistakes. So you might accidentally get a two-headed calf, but there was nothing to fear. The end of the world was not impending. And the third kind of uh, monster tradition, and this is the one that the book um, engages with a, a bit more, is that of distant parts of the world where uh, the climate being different it engenders different sorts of beings. So in Pliny the Elder's, Pliny the Elder's Natural History, he talks about 
monsters at uh, the, 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 the extreme south and east of the world. So these are, are beings who might have one giant foot instead of two legs and hold that foot above their head as a sunshade. They may live simply on a diet of smells. That would be the apple smellers. Now, the, the problem was, if you have monstrous peoples at the edges of the earth where for them it's perfectly normal over there to have one giant foot or to live in caves, and you have temperate regions where people live in a quote-unquote civil way, once you are traveling the entirety of the earth, that does beg the question, where is the boundary between human space and monster space? And, and so you have this anxiety of, well, if you have beings over there that are completely different and they, they inherit this monstrosity from generation to generation, you know, they have um, one leg in front instead of two, uh, or they have a very strange behavior like they eat human flesh, is that are those groups completely sealed off, hermetically sealed from people like me? You know, if, if human bodies are said to change with temperament, could you end up in a region where the climate is so different that you start to ontologically shift from being yourself to being something else? And um, what Renaissance maps did was, was, was twofold. One, um, they uh, showed you the different latitudes at which, which uh, people could have lived and uh, made you think about where the boundary might be between human space and, and monstrous peoples. But secondly, the, the, the visual code of the map, you know, to, to emblematize regions with different peoples, made you think about whether there were actually regions that had been found that engendered monstrous peoples. So the difference between a travel account saying, we met a few giants, we did such and such, and seeing a couple of giants in Patagonia on a map was huge. Because if, if you have a travel account like, say, Antonio Pigafetta's account of, of the circumnavigation of the Earth, the Magellan expedition of the 1520s, so this text talks about expedition members meeting a few giants. But you know, those could be just a few giants. Maybe they're just very tall people. Maybe they are um, errors, or maybe they are monstrous species. And you can't really tell from the text, but the visual code of the map, putting the giants on the map at that latitude, what viewers expected maps to show is what everybody in the region had in common. And if what they had in common was some kind of distinct physical difference that suggested that that was a, a region of monstrosity. And while this kind of thinking may seem fanciful to us, if a scientist today are, you know, also play with it, well, experiment, they think about this sort of thing, um, the, uh, you know, that we, we talk about the microbiome, so the human bodies, both, you know, the, the macro-organism we see and also the microorganisms. When astrobiologists think about where they might want to turn their, uh, their, 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 their um, telescopes, they look at the extremes of climate on Earth. They look, for example, at undersea volcanoes where there, is, there are forms of life that can, that can withstand that heat and pressure. And, and so they're able to think about the edge of life and the kinds of conditions that we may not associate with life and therefore turn those, their, their telescopes that way. And if, if life is found in another galaxy, you know, we don't expect that life to look like life on Earth because that's a different climate. So um, the ways in which people are thinking about the boundaries of the human is no different now than it was then we may we we know we think we know what a human is but we only know that in geographical space we still talk think about kind of liminal moment in ge geological time was there a day on which suddenly humans emerge or we to think about a continuum into into the prehistoric past that's really interesting so in a way when i'm looking at i believe you share these very interesting images of headless giants from Guyana, right, that mm -hmm. appear on maps. So in a way, 
if I were to think of myself as a 16th century audience member looking at a map like this, I'm not necessarily thinking of this map as a straight-up descriptive object. I'm thinking of it as making a proposal about the nature of the inhabitants there, what is the norm for the people of Guyana, perhaps they're headless. I don't know. I'm simply... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you don't know. Uh, there is limited information. Uh, and you also have a kind of general framework of, of how you think the world and nature works when you, when you look at them. And some of the evidence we have for, well, how did, what, did read, what did readers think? Uh, come from looking at... Uh, the things that readers produce when they did read. So sometimes you have book authors who uh, drew on maps. For example, you know Walter Raleigh's texts uh, ended up shaping uh, images of headless men and Amazons on maps. And then you have uh, those map images abstracted by, uh, for example, this is pamphlet publisher uh, Levinus Hulsius in Nuremberg, um, in late in the late 16th century, and what he puts on this kind of wonderful book cover for his pamphlet about Guyana is not just a front-facing headless man and a front-facing Amazon, uh, but he also comb- adds um, a headless person that you can see uh, from the back, and this headless person from the back has flowing hair flowing off their shoulders. Um, just like the Amazon has flowing hair that we see from the front. And while there was a map that also showed you a front and back view of a headless person, and it was a standard way to show a monster, hey, look, they're headless from the front and the back. Once you put in a row, you know, a headless person facing forwards, a headless person from the back who has flowing hair, and then an Amazon with a head and hair, in a row, you do start to wonder whether the creature in the middle, the person in the middle, is some sort of hybrid. And if you look back at Raleigh's text and look at the captions from Raleigh that end up um, on on D- Dutch maps, Raleigh talks about the Amazons who meet with the, who are who are all women who meet with men from neighboring tribes for a month every year, and then they mate, and then they keep the girl children and send away the boy children. And so, what you see from this this image that uh, a book printer has devised, bringing together things that are in maps, is this argument about um, the generation of new kind of wondrous peoples, which then again blurs the boundary between headless people, Amazons, and possibly the viewer. I just have to point out that with this image, what I love is the way all the figures are standing. They look like they come mm. from cla- a classical frieze. Yes, yeah, they are. Um, I mean, the, these are you know, kind of classic ways in which kind of Euro- European draftsmen uh, would represent bodies. I mean, we, we could be very um, uncharitable and talk about this as simply being... Um, a convention, uh, it, it's kind of derivative, but if we kind of look at all of these details, we can we can we can see that you know, that these embellishments would also have a, a, an an effect on the viewer. So the engraver of the 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 book engraving is reimagined the figures' costumes and accoutrements, even mixing and matching things like uh, their weapons. So the Iwaipanoma are now sporting these cloth skirts. All the figures have uh, more elaborate bows. And um, the the scenery on, uh, at, at the back suggests this, this, um, this bucolic landscape with, with with animals and the viewer might remember the wondrous animals that are in their own menageries and in, in natural histories which helps to make the view of the headless person the Waipanoma as Raleigh calls them and uh, the Amazons. But you know the the you know, the details like the contrapostis stance, the elegantly muscled abdomens, while they were conventions of draftsmanship when you read them alongside Raleigh's Guiana, as many viewers would have been, they were really freighted with 
with meaning. They they add this 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 sense of of civility. And so these are iconographic and rhetorical conventions that the draftsman is drawing from to signal subjects that were intended to be cre credible. We're supposed to see them as things drawn from life. I mean, that mid, mid, the figure in the middle, for example, is mid-stride. You have this weight balance between the legs. That left calf is bulging. You can imagine he's just about, or she, he, mm -hmm. is about to transfer weight from one foot uh, to the other. So all of these, these details um, give you the, the sense of these at least partially civil people. And these stances, as you so rightly can notice, they, they don't suggest savages. They suggest elegant burghers. And that, that Amazon, you know, that musculature draws attention uh, to this, this uh, you know, the Amazons, and this, you know, finely shaped uh, bodies. These weren't choices that the draftsmen needed to make. I mean, they could have monstrified these bodies to really kind of give us a sense of terror of, of, of and you know, these could have been abject beings in these, you know, terrible climate. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't inevitable that, that, uh, these figures, that graceful figures would be, would be, uh, produced. You could have made them, um, much, uh, much more savage. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. She looks quite a bit like one of Lucas Cronach's. Uh, ah, yes, yes, exactly. Gosh, yeah, that's that's very true. That just struck me right now, looking at yeah. her talking. Yeah, the, the sort of the loveliness of the image. It it wasn't mm -hmm. required, as you said, but somehow along the way, those were the choices, which makes mm -hmm. it all the more interesting when we think about how the hierarchy of humans, as you point out in the book, also how the dark side, it becomes tied to colonial policies, to various theories that advocated for colonialism. Um, before we shift gears and talk about the book sort of in relation to broader historiographies, I, th I thought it might be nice to just loop around to that side of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the uh, in these these maps are appearing in this this early colonial context where uh, various European powers are you know making decisions about you know what they're going to do in in the regions that they are exploring and taking by force. And um, there were famous debates in the mid-16th century in Spain about uh, whether or not the native peoples of the Americas were quote-unquote natural slaves. And you know, the, the two sides of this, this argument the, 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 you know, were um, Bartolomé de las Casas, um, this, this you know, um, you know, famous figure who was an apologist for, for uh, native peoples and Juan de Sepulveda, who felt that these these peoples were only meant to be natural slaves. So this is a this is a juridical theological uh, debate, and you know, both sides you know, you know sort of kind of claim to kind of win in in, in a sense. Um, but the the thing about uh, knowledge flowing back to Europe from about about new world peoples was you could find elements of great civility within the kind of European value system and you could find elements of savagery. You could find extraordinary architecture uh, in, in Mexico or, or, or Peru and you know you run into um, people who, who didn't live in cities uh, who um, whose you know forms of agriculture and 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 science were you know, conveniently elided from, from stories. And what these kind of maps suggested when you, when you looked at, say, a map of the Americas with different peoples in different regions, what they suggested was that you would, might need to evangelize and rule these populations differently because they were physically and therefore temperamentally different. And why these physicalities mattered was that they were, the soul was invisible. You couldn't see their mind. You couldn't see if people were capable of being civilized. So you were going by external symptoms, external signs, 
because uh, what you really wanted to see could not be seen. All right. That, that, that was a dark note to end, mm-hmm. end the map section on, but um, I did want to save some time to talk about kind of where this book has taken you. I know you've been, it's been out for about a year and you've been speaking to various mm-hmm. audiences about the book. Um, in those conversations, what are some themes that have emerged? Any themes that surprised you, questions that surprised you, or sort of bodies of of discourse that you have found yourself engaging with over and over? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Something that surprises me is how difficult it is for the 21st century viewer to see epistemic work being done in 16th century imagery. And what I mean by that is it's very difficult for the 21st century eye, to recognize when an illustration from many centuries past uh, is not simply a made-up cartoon like the Cookie Monster, (laughs) but is actually a scientific diagram. Um, What we need to do is to recover the period eye. We we can't look at an image of, you know, a kind of giant on a map and from the style of the woodcut or from the style of the whale on one of Olaus Magnus's uh, maps showing the sea, we can't look at that style and say, well, this looks silly, so it must be. Um, and so this connection between kind of style and, and our kind of visual culture, which is, is used to our kinds of diagrams, but not theirs, is, is, a, is something that limits the way in which um, you know, the, the scholarship in you know, the history of science as a visual pursuit might go, but, you know, in a, a modern scientific journal with an illustration, a diagram of, say, a molecule, you know, that we, we recognize that that's a molecule, not what a molecule really looks like. And in any case, at what what is the appropriate magnification for seeing a molecule? Surely they're all invisible. But we, we recognize a diagram of a molecule or of an electrical switch or a, a, a photo taken with an ele- electron scanning mi- microscope in the journal Nature, but we we don't we have to realize that when we look at images from the past, we need to read very widely to 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 see what sorts of epistemic work might be being done, and something can have decorative purposes and yet also have epistemic ones too. Yeah, it seems like people do often get tripped up by the sort of double nature of early modern images, that they're very aesthetic on Mm -hmm. one hand, and they're very dense with arguments and knowledge in another. Mm -hmm. And I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's because it's a little bit, maybe the reaction is strong because it's a little bit scary to approach one of these images. Yeah, I, I guess um, the our iconography for fantasy is basically their their diagrammatic iconography for nature. So we look and see things that for us, you know, had long, you know, been coded as this is what made up stuff looks like. And even there are words like that, like a unicorn. You know, if you ask twenty people to define what a unicorn is, a lot of them will probably say. Um, an imaginary animal that has like a horse with a horn on their head or whatever but a unicorn is one horn there are tons of unicorns, they're real they're all different, we just have different names for them like antelope or narwhal so uh, one of the challenges is, is that I mean, in, in a more kind of teleological age um, the kind of history of science was written as this you know, great progress towards better knowledge. Um, and while, of course, over time we do accumulate more information and we figure out stuff uh, better over time, we, we, but we are standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. Um, so if we hadn't found out more than they had, well, then we would be doing something wrong. And yet, because conventions of, of, of writing, conventions of, of illustrating change, it's, it's, it's too easy to look at the you know, past modes and not see the work being done. And in many ways, the cutting edge of science today is providing a new kind of 
is providing paragraphs that say in different language forms of, of science that you will find even in classical antiquity. For example, the, the notion that the body is affected by you know, the things we eat, you know, by our microbiomes, um, that you know, prevention, you, know, you might try to prevent your, your epigenetics, you know, bits of your genes from, from being traumatized into, into action, um, that, that things that happen to you might change your body. We, we have language, folk language, if you will, like, oh, after that shock, she was never the same again. Her hair went white. She was never, not the same person again. It sounds very, very um, non-scientific. Um, but um, what you know, kind of a lot of, kind of recent scientists are doing is finding uh, kind of that there, there are moments when different genes get turned on and off. So that that language, seemingly ridiculous language of "oh, it was never the same again," or, or "oh, eat these things and your body will change." You know, we we we. We, f we do also find uh, evidence within our own framework of what counts as evidence. When you were writing this book, were you thinking about situating it within any um, bodies of historiography? Were you in your head, because I, I do this sometimes when I'm writing, so this is maybe says more about me than about you, but sometimes when I'm writing and thinking about Authors, I'd like to have conversations with historians' mm. books. Sure, yes, I suppose. In a in a nutshell, I felt that this book was in conversation with the with with a conference with the Renaissance Society of America annual meeting. Um, it's this wonderful interdisciplinary space with people working in art history, history of science, literary studies, cultural history. Um, and, and, you know, many of those scholars work across their disciplines to better understand the global renaissance. Um, so that's a kind of generic, you know, first community that I, I would write for. And at different moments, the book was in conversation with, with ideas from, for example, Anne Blair's Too Much to Know. So the information overload of the early modern period is also one of, of information about what you know Tony Grafton you know famously called the New Words Ancient Texts. Mm -hmm. So uh, that engagement between the kind of very ancient and the contemporary and what that what that does to to European knowledge is a way in which this work uh, talks to that of Anne Blair and Tony Grafton. In terms of history of science, I mean Daniela Blanchemar's work on, on uh, visual botany on botanical illustrations and uh, Paula Smith's uh, sorry Pamela Smith's work on um, on you know artisans and the workshops at which you know, scholars and, and people who work with their hands come together. Uh, those were works um, that I both drew on, but also in some ways kind of have counterexamples for. Which is of course that my my protagonists were not people who travelled on ships and drew their plants in situ. Uh, they weren't uh, people who were, um, you know, eyewitnesses in the conventional sense, but rather they were composing artifacts so that their their workshops had authority. And this work is also in conversation with scholars of um, uh, the early Americas, North and South America, and who also intersect with history of science, like George Chaplin and Nicolas Way Gomez. Um, what I showing my book is some of the uh, intellectual consequences of thinking about climate and bodies and latitude. I was rereading Svetlana Alper's The Art of Describing after I read your book and thinking about, you know, how much of a change has happened in the way art historians think about making as well. Because your book as you point out, is about people who didn't leave Europe mm -hmm. and often groups of people who didn't leave Europe who were sitting down together and working out what a place that they'd never seen should look like. And it's quite interesting to think about earlier comments on you know, the art of description where it was always eyewitness-based. The, the eye that saw was necessarily connected to the hand that drew. And your book points out at least to me, in a very interesting way, how misleading that style can be. It can be an eyewitness-looking style. It can be a factual style, 
with people who've never seen any of this stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, so we kind of open out that, that question about um, the knowledge produced because somebody eyewitnessed something. Some of that knowledge is actually constituted in new ways by people who want the eyewitness. Yes, and this is kind of, I think in art history now it's also a new direction for people to think about. That the making yes. of objects, yes, happens in teams. Yes, indeed. And Stephanie Leach uh, has certainly been, been spearheading some of the, the print culture and knowledge uh, work, work in that regard. All right, so we don't have too much time left. I want to give you a couple of minutes to talk about your new project. Uh, sure. Uh, so this is called Collecting Artifacts in the Age of Empire, and it arose as I noticed how Europeans compared the arts and architecture of classical antiquity and the artifacts of peoples overseas. And overseas objects found their way into early modern princely and scholarly collections, and there they were catalogued, displayed alongside, you know, animal specimens and, you know, of things from classical antiquity, you know, everything from cameos to blowfish. And but this is also a moment when Europe is discovering it, it, it's its own past. And you know, you have you know archaeology, you know, people are digging and, and, and finding evidence for the lifestyles of their distant ancestors. So I'm looking at cabinets of curiosities, at inventories, at catalogues, at prints and paintings of them, at surviving cabinets, to see to what extent these cabinets were what I call epistemic installations. These collections kind of brought together and organized in order to generate and also brainstorm ethnographic knowledge. So my hypothesis here is that these collections were forms of cultural memory that imagined local and national and subaltern communities that kind of invented uh, modern citizens and, and indigenous groups. So what I'm doing here is grappling with larger questions about the kind of emergence through the material of, uh, of, of disciplines, of art history, archaeology, anthropology, uh, the place of aesthetics and the visual effect of displaying objects from all over the world, things made by humans and things made by God, and, and thereby you know, where the origins of our modern museums comes from. When I finished your book, I had in mind a particular painting, and I think it's actually strangely relevant to your new project. At that point, I hadn't read your project description. It's Jan van Kessel's painting ah. of the Four Continents. Yes. Yeah. Gosh. They. Uh, yeah. In the in in Munich, isn't it? Yes. In, are they? Yes. yes. Um, they. Uh, yeah. They. Um, they absolutely kind of kind of intersect. They show you. Uh, you know, this is the Borg transwarp conduit. <laughs> Here you have. You know, the these this these kind of paintings that are kind of doing that geographical labor of the maps. So here are the four continents. They're emblematizing the peoples. And they're also kind of providing, you know, for you this this the work of the cabinet. So this is the ultimate prosthetic. You know, they're paintings of other prosthetics. <laughs> Your cabinets and they're they're mimicking um, the map. And, and this is really kind of where where we see how today's disciplines aren't the way uh, knowledge was shaped or the way people worked in the early modern period. We need to get outside of how we break up disciplines in order to see the practices and, and spheres of, of influence and work in the early modern period. Oh, on that note, perhaps I should let you get back to working on this magical new project. I'm sorry, when you said when you said they're the ultimate press thesis, I immediately thought, oh, early modern virtual reality, because these people, yes. they are so wild. They are. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving up an hour or so of your precious time. You know, every thank scholar, you. Every scholar values their time away from teaching. <laughs> Well, it's 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 lovely to have the opportunity to to, to talk about the, the work. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much, and good luck with your new project. 
Hopefully you'll come back and tell us about it. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. on this podcast was recorded by Paul Bowles in Morocco. Bowles proposed in 1957 that the Library of Congress sponsor his project to record Moroccan music in all of its breadth. The project was, in Bowles' words, a fight against time. In 1959, with the support of the Library of Congress and a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, Bowles crisscrossed Morocco setting up recording sessions in towns all over the country. He would make three more trips between 1959 and 1961. Bowles had no formal training in ethnomusicology, and his choices were guided by the contingencies of geography and travel, and by his own aesthetics. The Library of Congress graciously granted the JHI blog permission to use excerpts from the Paul Bowles Music Collection. If you like what you hear, some of these recordings are available from dust to digital as a four-CD set called The Music of Morocco. Credit for the sound and production on this podcast goes to our managing editor, Derek O'Leary. From all of us at the JHI blog, thank you for listening today. We hope you will join us again soon. Oh, yeah.